Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11 again, and I want to finish the message that I started last week, the Antioch model. We got uh, three of four major points, but then there was a conclusion that I didn't get a chance to give to you, and it's important, and so I want to give that to you today. So Acts chapter 11, and we'll look again at the a second time at the Antioch model. They say there was a preacher who <clears throat> was candidating for a church, and he preached such a tremendous motivational message. People were so blessed by it that they took a vote right there and uh, that same day and voted him in as the new pastor. So the next week he comes back, and he preaches the exact same message. I mean, almost word for word. And uh, one of the deacons said to another deacon, you know, that was odd. Maybe, maybe he thought that, you know, that was the preparatory message, but, you know, he should preach it again. Let's see what he preaches next week. And week number three, guess what? Preaches the exact same message. So the one deacon says to the other deacon, you know, somebody needs to talk to this guy, find out what's going on. We, we think it's a great message, but he's already preached it three times. We need other things, to preach about other things. So they drew straws. And the guy who got the short straw went to the pastor and said, Pastor, we love you and you're doing a great job, but you keep preaching the same thing every week. And the preacher said, well, of course, until you guys start to do it, I'm going to keep preaching it. <laughs> and uh, sometimes maybe that's what the Lord does in my life. He just keeps bringing topics to mind because that's what we need to hear. And it may seem similar, it may seem the same even to you. I hope it's not the same as last week's, but it's because we need to hear it again. So let me encourage you, if you were here with us last week, get out your notes from last week if you have them. If you weren't here with us last week, don't worry, I'm going to catch you up, and uh, we're going to look at the Antioch model part two today. Let's read the passage, Acts 11. I'm going to read it to you. Um, I'll read it out loud. You follow along as I read. Acts 11, verse 19. Now they that were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phinehas and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they should cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. That's the passage we're going to look at today. Father, thank you again for gathering people today. And now as we come to your word, we need your Holy Spirit to calm our minds and our hearts. I know some are in turmoil this morning. The circumstances of life, the people uh, around them, uh, their treatment, just things. They come this morning with a lot of burdens, and I don't want them to be burdened. I want them to see hope in Jesus Christ, so open their eyes. Some folks come, and they're tired. They've been busy all week, just working long hours. Maybe there's been a lack of sleep, and I ask that you'd keep them awake, keep them alert, help them to see the truths 
from your word that you have for us today. For all of us, Lord, that we would have a desire, a burning desire to be committed to you and to your church, to love you, to love people, and to be preachers of Jesus Christ as these folks were. And we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week, just to get you caught up, we looked at uh, three commands, uh, or a command in three ways. So it was the command explained, and uh, what happened there was that Jesus had told his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses. You've seen my death, you've seen my resurrection, now I want you to go tell other people about it. And they were really good at that right there in uh, Jerusalem. And thousands, literally thousands of people were saved in Jerusalem. But they didn't leave Jerusalem, even though Jesus had told them that they'd be witnesses first in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the outermost parts of the world. Well, they weren't leaving Jerusalem. They were content to stay there. And how often it is that God gives us a command, and we start doing it, and then we get comfortable doing it in just this one spot. And God wants us to progress to keep doing it, but in new places or to new people. And we say, well, I just like this spot here. And so just like them, we get stuck in a rut and they're stuck in a rut. They're preaching Jesus at Jerusalem, but they're not going to Judah or Samaria and certainly not to the other, other, uttermost part of the, uh, parts of the world. So Jesus, God sends persecution. And uh, Stephen in particular is stoned to death. He dies by people throwing rocks at him. And then chapter 8 verse 1 says that a great persecution breaks out. And one of those that's persecuting everyone is this Saul fellow that we're going to see here in Acts 11. But they're being hauled into prison. Some of them are being killed. And because of that persecution, they are scattered. They leave. They say, we're not going to stay here and face trouble. So they run away, which by the way, uh, you can see in Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus had told his disciples, if you're persecuted in this city, just go ahead and move on to the next one. So they were following God's will. They were now moving out. They went to Samaria first. We saw that in chapter 8. They went to Samaria. They preached the word and their Samaritans were saved. But this group here, as you see in verse 19, that was traveling beyond Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world, they were still only preaching to Jews. They'd go to a town, they'd find the Jewish community there, they'd probably find the synagogue first, and they'd preach Jesus to the Jews, but that's as far as it went. Until they got to Antioch, and here it says in verse 20, that when they got to Antioch, they spake unto the Grecians, these are the non-Jews, these are the Gentiles, and they preached to them Jesus, and literally, again, a multitude, great numbers of people were saved, it says. Well, the church in Jerusalem heard about this. Wow, people are being saved, and not just Jews, but Gentiles are being saved in the city of Antioch. We need to send someone to make sure we understand what's going on. So they sent Barnabas there, and what he found was, remember what I emphasized last week, he found God's grace. Again, look with me, verse 23, who, when he, Barnabas, came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. It's God's grace that changes lives. And we're going to come back and hit that again today because I want you to understand that the Bible is not a set of moral principles that somehow we, we work really hard to accomplish. The Bible does have moral principles in it, but none of us can keep those laws without God's grace. Now, even before salvation, we don't keep those laws. God's mercy is poured out on us and he forgives our sins. And I'm so grateful he forgives us. And then after salvation, he doesn't want us to stay the same people we were before. So he pours out his grace on us so that we can change. So 
They, the, the people there in Antioch, the first thing they did that we mentioned last week is they talked to everyone. They talked to Jews. They talked to Gentiles. They talked to tall people. They talked to short people. They talked to rich, to poor, uh, people they knew, people they didn't know. And I encourage you to talk to everyone. Don't look at someone, size them up by their outward appearance and say, well, they'll never believe in Jesus, so I'm not going to tell them. They talked to everyone. And what did they talk about? They talked about Jesus. It says that. End of verse 20, they're preaching Jesus. And so Barnabas arrives. He sees that they're preaching Jesus. He sees multitudes saved. He sees that lives are changed. And he sees that that is the grace of God. And he's glad. He's excited. And it says there in verse uh, 23 again, exhorted, Barnabas exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. There's a call that Barnabas made to be committed. And we spent a lot of time on that last week, this call to commitment. And we're going to come back to that again today, this call to commitment, because you will never progress in your Christian life until you're committed to Jesus Christ. And I want to emphasize again, it's not a commitment to me. It's not a commitment to the church or that is the people here. It's not a commitment to your friend who comes to church here or your spouse who comes to church here. It's a commitment to Jesus Christ because people will disappoint you at some point. And I hope this never happens, but I, I just know that at some point I'm going to disappoint you because I'm a human being and I forget things. In fact, yesterday, one of you said, can you do this for me by tomorrow morning? You called me this morning. Thank you. Said, did you do this? I said, no. <laughs> this man was kind enough to say, hey, I'll take care of it. And he did. Thank you. I'm going to disappoint you. Sometimes just because I don't care enough, sometimes because I'm busy, sometimes because I'm forgetful. I mean, there's going to be a lot of reasons I'm going to disappoint you, but your commitment isn't to me or even to this church. It's to Jesus Christ. So we need to be committed. But I want you to see in verse 26 and uh, read with me. Excuse me. I will read to you, but follow along as I read verse 26. When he had found him, that's Barnabas had found Saul. He brought him, he brought Saul to Antioch and it came to pass that a whole year, a whole year, notice that, a whole year, they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. So what happens here? Uh, Barnabas sees that there's a church here. There's a group of believers and, and they're doing great, but they can do even better. There's more that they can do. And he says, hey, I know just the man to minister to this church. He leaves Antioch. He goes to Tarsus. He finds his, his uh, buddy. I, they're not quite buddies yet, but they'll get there. Uh, Saul, and he brings him back. And now Barnabas and Saul, they gather with this church. And how long do they gather with this church? A whole year, the Bible says. Now, the reason that's important, we just had Matt Galvin with us. I'm going to get to the reason that's important. We just had Matt Galvin with us. He stayed from a Sunday until a Friday. And uh, during that time, we did. We met every day. Uh, not all of us met every day. There was different groups that met, but we had a great week with Matt Galvin. And you know what? I wish that we could have a, an evangelist in like that once a year, and it would be enough to keep us motivated for the whole year. But it doesn't work that way. The Christian life takes more than a one-week commitment. It takes more than a one-day-a-week commitment. They assembled with this church for a whole year. It takes time to build habits of righteousness. It takes time to develop a Christian walk that separates you from the world. 
that, that makes you different than the people around you. It takes time. And often you get discouraged. I get discouraged. We say, you know what? Uh, this doesn't seem to be working. And so we give up and we do something else. I don't know how many people have told me this. They'll say this. I tried Christianity and it didn't work. <laughs> Christianity isn't something you try like a new car, right? You drive a new car. I don't like this car. You take it back into the dealership. You give it back and you ask for a different one. That's not Christianity. Christianity isn't something you try, like Thai food, right? T-H-A-I, Thai food. Some of you love Thai food. And some of you absolutely cannot even eat it. It's just way too spicy. It's not something you try. God's grace changes our lives dramatically. And we're going to see how dramatically it changes lives here in a minute. But God's uh, grace, it changes our lives dramatically. We've got to be committed and not just a one week, one day a week commitment or one week long commitment or a month long commitment. It's got to be a lifetime commitment. And the more committed you are and the longer you are committed, the more change that you'll see. Now, notice what they did. It says they assembled with them a whole year and taught. That word taught means to teach, to instruct. Very simple. They just taught. They said, here is what God wants you to do. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. It's a rhetorical question, but I'm going to pause for a long time because I want you to think. Don't, don't shout out the answer, please, because that'll shortcut some people's thinking. And they'll say, oh, yeah, that's, that's right. I want all of you to think. Here they're teaching people. But I can tell you from observation that merely instructing people, merely teaching people, which is what this word is, what they did, merely teaching people, merely instructing people is not enough to change people's lives. So here's my question. And again, don't shout out the answer, David. Don't shout out the answer. What else was here? It's in the text. What else was here in addition to Paul and Barnabas's, Saul and Barnabas' teaching? What else was here? that enabled these lives to be changed. Now, again, don't say it out loud. Just think to yourself. What is it in addition to the teaching? The teaching was critical. Teaching was important. But in addition to the teaching that was changing their lives. And the answer is back there in verse 23. Let me read it to you. Who, when he, Barnabas, came and had seen the grace of God. It was the grace of God. 2 Timothy 2.2 says... Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There's two aspects to this changed life that they're going, you're going to see clearly the lives were changed. There's two aspects to this changed life. One is that they had instruction. Somebody taught them what the Bible was, what the Bible said. But there's something else they had. And that is they had God's grace. Now, just yesterday, I was reading a story. It's a fascinating story. In fact, Javen, you read it, didn't you? You remember that story? You want to come up and tell the people? Okay, sorry. <laughs> I was hoping I could get him up here. Seriously, I was reading this story. It's a fascinating story about a village, I believe in Papua New Guinea, that some decades ago had had some missionaries appear. And these missionaries only spoke the trade language. And in the trade language, they had taught the people some, some principles of the Bible. And then... For whatever reason, the article did not say their ministry was cut short. Perhaps they died. Their ministry was cut short. And for many decades, these people had no Bible instruction. 
And the three things that they took away from these early missionaries who were teaching in the trade language, number one, that they should build a building. So they built a building. Number two, that they should baptize people. So they were putting people under the water, bringing them back up. And number three, this idea of, of communion or the Lord's Supper where they, they would meet and they would partake of, uh, of the element representing the blood and the element, element representing Jesus' body. But they didn't take anything else away than those three points. And this tribe had for millennia believed that there were evil spirits that were plaguing them when people got sick when people had an accident, when crops failed, they would immediately attribute it to a spirit. And so they saw Jesus as another one of those spirits that they had to make happy. And they were going to make him happy by meeting in this building and baptizing people and eating and drinking. And, and that's all they took away. And let me tell you, it did not change the village. They, they had some ideas, but what they lacked was God's grace. And about 20 years ago now, another group of three couples came to the village. And they took some time. They learned the people's language. They didn't speak to them in the trade language. They, uh, initially, they probably did, but they learned the language. They lived among them. And they taught them that not only did they need instruction, they needed God's grace. And people began to be saved. And they decided the best way to illustrate the change that was going on was they tore down the walls of that building, but they left the roof on. And now they meet there. But what was amazing to me in the article is they gave four or five different accounts of people whose lives were changed. There was a husband who used to beat his wife and be severely critical of her. And when he became a Christian, he stopped beating his wife. He stopped being critical of her, and he started gathering the firewood for the family. There was another lady who was so bitter, and she saw what the missionaries were doing, and she spoke against them. She said, these people, they're lying to you. Don't listen to them. They're outsiders. They don't know. But then when she became a Christian and experienced that walk with Jesus, that Holy Spirit walk for herself, all that bitterness went away, and she could forgive people. What is it that changes lives? Not mere instruction, because I can tell you something and you don't receive it. It's the grace of God in your life. Now, let me show you from the text that we know their lives were changed. End of verse 26. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now, the disciples were called. It doesn't say the disciples called themselves Christians. The disciples didn't say, hey, we need a name to describe ourselves. You know, um, what, what do you like? Well, disciple, no, no, follower, no, that's not, believer, no, 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 that's not good enough. Christian, yeah, yeah, that's what, we'll call ourselves Christians. That's not what happened here. Other people saw them and they said, these people are different. We got to give them a name. Now, let me help you understand this concept a little bit by, by just talking about American culture. Some of you grew up in the 60s, and in the 60s, there was a group called the hippies. And you could spot a hippie, couldn't you? The way they dressed, the way they acted, what they talked about was so different from the rest of the culture that we called them hippies. Now, some of you are too young to remember hippies. So I came up with another term. Some of you are too old to know this term, but you know there's a group of people in the United States that are called Swifties. 
Sw- you say Swifties. What, do they run really fast? No? They like racing cars? No? They're called Swifties because they follow Taylor Swift. They go to her concerts. They listen to her music. I heard one person say, this was their personal experience. This person said, I spoke to my friend and said, I don't like Taylor Swift's music. And my friend said, you can die and go to hell. Boy, that's pretty strong language for some a singer. That's what a Swifty is. Absolutely dedicated to Taylor Swift. Now, I don't know Taylor Swift. I don't think I've heard any of her music. So I'm not saying anything other than those people get described as Swifties because they're changed behavior and they're changed attitude toward people. Guess what? The people of Antioch, they looked at this group and they said, those people are different. Maybe they dressed different. I don't know. They certainly talked different because everywhere they went, they preached Jesus. It certainly changed their lives because, as I mentioned, Barnabas came and immediately he saw God's grace. And they said, those people are different. They get their own name. We're going to call them Christians. Now, I want you to hold your place in Acts 11 and go back to Acts chapter 2 for a second so we can pick up one phrase here. Acts chapter 2, and um, it's going to be in verse... 42, but again, we're going to look at 41 and 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. We read this as our Bible reading. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And in verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That word doctrine there is the noun form of the verb teach that you see in um, Acts eleven twenty six. So they continued in their doctrine. Paul and uh, Saul and Barnabas taught them. There was this teaching that they followed religiously. Every day they followed. It wasn't just sometimes they followed the teaching. It wasn't just when they got together as a church they followed the teaching. They steadfastly followed their doctrine. Look at verse 46. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Every day they were meeting. Now, I don't know that they met every day in Antioch. The text doesn't say that. But if I know Barnabas, he had seen this model in Jerusalem. And he said, hey, guys, we need to meet more often. We need to, we need, there's a whole lot of stuff we have to teach you. It's going to take a whole year, even if we just use a fire hose. And so we need to meet more often. By the way, that passage in Hebrews that tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together also says, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day? The day of Jesus Christ's return. Just yesterday, I had one of you say to me, I hope Jesus Christ comes back soon. And I said, I hope it's today. It wasn't. I mean, because that was yesterday. Maybe it'll be today. But if you are eager for Jesus Christ's return, as you should be, then you should also be eager to meet more often with the rest of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Here at Elmira Baptist Church, we meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45. We have a Sunday school class. I want to encourage you to be here. There's teachers that have spent all week preparing to teach their class. 9.45, we have a Sunday school class. You're here. It's 11 o'clock. But guess what? This evening, we're going to meet again at 5. 
And there's a group that meets at seven o'clock on Wednesdays for a Bible study and prayer. And there's a different group, a, a ladies group that meets on Friday mornings at 1030. They also do a Bible study. There are many opportunities to meet. Where are you? You say, well, I've got what more important things to do. See, that's where it comes back to commitment. These people at Antioch, they were committed. Barnabas exhorted them that with purpose of heart, they should cleave to the Lord. And then he said, we've got a lot to teach you. Let's start gathering together. And for a whole year, Saul, Barnabas, they assembled themselves together with the church and they taught them. And their teaching and God's grace, their teaching combined with God's grace, changed lives to the point that the people in Antioch said, that group is different. That group is distinctive. That group, we, we recognize them. They are, they've got to, we've got to call them something. They're not hippies. They're not Swifties. They're, they're Christians. But what's needed from you, God's grace is always the same. And God's grace is always enough. But what's needed from you is cooperation. What do I mean by that? How many of you played t-ball when you were in first, second grade. Anybody in here played t-ball? Okay, some of you are going to get this illustration. Some of you didn't play t-ball. But you know, when you're that small and they put that bat in your hands for the first time, and, and in t-ball, there's no pitcher. There's this stand. It's a black stand. It's yay high so that the kids can hit it. And they simply put the ball on top of that stand and the ball does not move. And you would think, how hard can it be to hit a baseball that's stationary? Well, if you wonder, you should teach first graders. Because it's, it seems almost impossible to hit the ball. They hit the stand. They swing over the top of the ball. It's, it's hilarious. It's a lot of fun to watch. It's infuriating as a coach. I mean, come on, hit the ball. So what the coach does, or sometimes a father will do this. I remember my dad helping me in first grade. I, I, I hold the bat correctly. I, I put it behind my, my uh, shoulder here. And my dad comes behind me. He's much bigger than I am at this point, And he puts his hands over my hands. And he helps me swing and hit that ball. He puts his hands over my hands. His hands are huge. My hands are little tiny first grader hands. Puts his hands over my And together we swing and we hit that ball. And I tell you what, when my dad helped me hit that ball, I was the best batter on my team. <laughs> but it wasn't me. It was my dad, wasn't it? Now, every once in a while, I get proud in my little first grade mind. Dad, I can do this. And I would fight him, right? He's trying to swing and I'm trying to swing. We never hit the ball straight on. When I had decided that I'm going to swing this bat, I don't need my dad's help. Sometimes my dad would say, okay, go ahead, son. He'd stand back. Of course, I'm, you know. <laughs> Finally, I hit the stand. The ball falls off in the dirt. Okay, Dad, I need your help, right? Puts his hands over mine. Okay, we smack out into the outfield. What's the difference? The difference is whether I cooperate with my dad or not. My dad knows what he's doing. He's got enough power to hit that ball over the fence if, if, if I was out of the way. But he wants to use me and my hands to swing through and hit that ball. You know what? God doesn't need us to accomplish his will but he wants to use us and he wants us to cooperate with him. And the Antioch model is there's the grace of God. There's the teaching of the word of God. There's cooperation. And because there's cooperation, lives are changed. But so many times, even as Christians, you know what? We say, God, I've got this. I don't need your help. And we don't hit the ball very well. 
Or God's got his hands over our hands and we're, we're fighting, you know, no, I, I can do this by myself. And we don't accomplish God's will. But it's never God's fault. It's always my lack of cooperation that is preventing me. There's some things that are needed if you're going to cooperate. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. There's some things that are needed if you're going to cooperate with God and experience His grace. And combined with the teaching of Elmira Baptist Church, you're going to see such change in your life that the people around you are going to say, hey, there's something different about you. We've got to give you your own name. And we're not going to call you hippies and we're not going to call you Swifties. We're going to call you Christians. Now, you probably know somebody, by the way, let me go down this side trail for a second here. You probably know people at work or maybe you have neighbors and they'll say, I'm a Christian, but they don't act like it. I'm not asking you to say you're a Christian. I'm asking, you to, I'm asking you to act like a Christian so that other people say, oh, you must be a Christian. We have a contractor in our midst today, and he told me, those contractors that call themselves Christians, you've got to watch out for them. <laughs> He's not the first one. I've got a contractor friend in Oregon. He's told me the same thing. If they have a fish on their truck, I get some extra recommendations. That's not the way it should be. You shouldn't need to put a fish on the back of your car so that people know you're Christian. You shouldn't have to tell people, I mean, I want you to tell people, but you shouldn't have to tell people, I'm a Christian. They should recognize, oh, that guy's different. That lady's different. For one thing, our marriages are going to be extremely different than the marriages of people that are not Christians. Our speech is going to be very different than people that are not Christians. In a couple of ways. One is we're not going to use vulgar language. We're certainly not going to take the Lord's name in vain, are we? It's, ama it's amazing to me how casually people use Jesus' name in their conversation without any reference to him. It's amazing to me how many times they call upon God, except they're not actually calling upon God, a Christian speech, there's no room in a Christian speech for that. It's going to be, our speech is going to be different because we're going to have a kind word. It's a soft answer that turns away wrath. I, I, I'll be frank. Part of the reason for the drama in your house is you. And if you'll change the way you speak, especially fathers, if you'll change the way you speak to your children, if you'll change the way you speak to your wife, that gets contagious. Yep. But if you resort to yelling right away, why are you surprised that your children resort to yelling when they don't get their way? If I have nasty, critical, sarcastic comments for my wife every time she does something I don't like, is it any surprise that my children have nasty, critical comments for each other? when they do something they don't like? It should be that people come into our home and just after a few minutes or an hour, they say, boy, something is different here. This isn't like the home I live in. And what is it? Oh, it's me. I'm such a great guy. No, no, no. It's the grace of God. It's God's hands over mine and we're hitting home runs. Because I'm cooperating with God. I'm letting God have his way in my heart. God rebukes me, says, you can't speak that way. And I say, you're right. God, forgive me. And then I go to my family member and I say, hey, I said something harsh. 
I said something untrue. I said something unkind. Would you forgive me? That's, that's what makes a difference. We, we, we need Christians who are different, not because we say we're Christians. We need diff- Christians who are different because we act differently. And people say, just like hippies had their way of acting, and just like Swifties have their way of acting, this whole group of people over here, they have their own way of acting, and it's nothing like the way we act. That's the Antioch model. But to change our habits, and that's the word I want to use today, habits. It's the way... What happened here in this passage is the way they normally acted, the habits that they acted out got changed. And because their habits changed, their lives changed. And people said, boy, their lives are different. We got to call them something. We'll call them Christians. Their habits changed. If you're going to change a habit, there's going to be some cost. And the first cost is you have to admit that your current habit is wrong. Most of the reason that we cannot, and I include myself, most of the reason I cannot change is because I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. Somebody comes to me, Pastor, you said this, wasn't kind, and what do I want to say? Well, let me explain to you. (laughs) Let me tell you why, right? One of my children, Dad, you're getting angry. Yeah, I have every right to be angry. I'll tell you why I'm angry. That's why we don't change, isn't it? It costs something. We have to say my current habits are wrong. My current priorities are wrong. The way I'm currently living is not satisfactory to God. Again, it's not about me. It's not about making the church look good. It's about glorifying God. And our lives ought to be so different that the people at work say, boy, something's different about you. They probably are not going to like it, by the way. Because when light shines into the darkness, the darkness hates it. So I'm not saying you're going to become more popular at work. My guess is you're going to become less popular. But we're not trying to be popular. We're not trying to be famous. We're trying to glorify God. It costs something. It costs us. The first cost is we have to admit that we're wrong. And the second cost, here it is. Listen carefully. We cannot change without God's grace. Now, I'd like to think I'm a pretty good guy and I can change. Yeah, I see. Okay, I'm doing this wrong. So, okay, I'm going to make a difference. And, you know, you read those self-help books and they say something like, it's, you know, you've got to say affirming words to yourself. I can, you know, I won't get angry. I won't get angry. I won't get angry. I won't get angry. What, Dad, what are you doing? I'm trying to practice here. You know, I won't get angry. I won't get angry. Right? That's what we think it is. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's going to go one of two ways. You know, for some people, that works really well. And here's what, they become proud. I've changed my life, why don't you change yours, right? That, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Or it doesn't work. And that's when people say, well, I tried Christianity and it didn't work. Yeah, that's, that's it, you tried Christianity. God's grace is the essential ingredient in this. And if you're not willing to get on your knees and say, God, without your help, I can't do anything right then you're not going to make progress. And when people come to you and they say, boy, what's different about you? Your language has changed. Your speech has changed. You don't get angry anymore. If you say, well, yeah, I'm a pretty good fellow now, then you've missed it. Your answer should be God's grace. I have good friends in Washington, the state of Washington. They had some children and their children participated in, in uh, public sports, uh, baseball, if I remember right, particularly, but public sports. And they said from time to time, a fellow parent would come to them and say, you must be doing a great job with your children. They're so respectful. They work hard. And they would always say, it's not me. It's God. 
Now, it's really easy as a parent to say, yeah, I got good kids. No, 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 I don't got good kids. I've got a great God. And you, those of you with children, don't ever miss the point. You need God's grace to be a good parent. Now, there are good parenting principles in the Word of God. And I encourage you to get books that will help you understand what those principles are. But it's not the principles alone. It's the principles in God's grace. And then number three, the third cost, and usually where we get hung up is we've got to make a decision. You know, God's grace does not make us marionettes. Marionettes are the puppets with the strings on them. And what, this string goes up and the arm goes up and this string goes up and, the, and then, the, the, you know, you lift a leg and then we're not marionettes. God's grace doesn't work that way. We're holding the bat and it's God's hands of omnipotence over our hands. And if we'll just cooperate, we can get a base hit. We can accomplish God's will. But when it comes to the cost of the decision, that's where we get stuck. That's where we say, you know what? I'm not going to do that. So, for example, and I'm, I'm, I am, I'm trying to step on toes today here. <laughs> Next Sunday, 945, where are you going to be? And now, some of you may have legitimate reasons you can't make it at 945. Uh, our brother Ken over here, he's a firefighter, and if he's supposed to be at the fire station, I want you at the fire station, brother. But most of us, we don't have an excuse. We say, well, it's hard to get up early. This coming from someone who goes into San Francisco and gets up at 5 o'clock in the morning, Monday through Friday. What's more important, your job or your God? We've got to decide what's important. You say, well, I'm so tired on Sunday mornings. My first question, how late did you stay up Saturday night? Now, by the way, some of you have insomnia. If you have insomnia, God will give you grace for that. Please just take, just hold on a second. But most of us don't have insomnia. We just don't care enough to be here. We just think there's something more important. And it's that cost of the decision that keeps us from making progress. Because we look at the possibilities, we look at what God's grace is encouraging us and enabling us to do, and we say, you know what? I, I just can't do that. Now let me ask you a question. Go back to the church at Antioch in Acts 11 here. Do you think it costs them something to be Christians, to follow Jesus Christ? I think it costs them something. I can tell you in Mongolia, you know one of the first things that Mongolians would bring to my attention is we were going through the Bible and teaching them the principles and helping them understand it's God's grace. And so they put those two things together and their lives would begin to change and they would say, it's really hard to run a business honestly in Mongolia. Because everyone else is cheating. Hey, pastor, how are we supposed to make money when everyone else is tampered with their scales and selling product and we have to have honest scales? How are we supposed to make money? How are we supposed to, I'm a car salesman in Mongolia. How am I supposed to make money if I don't lie to people about the quality of the product? How am I supposed to make money? Now, here's the question. Do you trust God or do you trust money? That's what I say to him. <coughs> it's going to cost you something. I know, it's, I know it's going to cost you something. That's why I'm telling you up front. Change is not easy. I'm also telling you God's grace is sufficient. And there's no cost that you can't pay to accomplish God's will if you're willing to cooperate with God. It results in changed lives. 
These people were so different that they got a nickname Christians. That's how different they were. Now I'm asking you, think back, or think, excuse me, today, in your experience, what you have happened, had happened this last week. If we went back to some of the people that you interacted with this last week at work, at home, in your neighborhood, and we said, is this person different? Would they say, oh yeah, some, something's different about them? Or would they say, no, I, everybody I work with is like them. Because if there's no difference, let me suggest that God's grace is not, you, let me suggest that you're not cooperating with God's grace. And because of your lack of cooperation, God's grace is not having the effect in your life that God wants it to have. How many of you have a cat at home? Final illustration. How many of you have a cat at home? Okay. I hate my cats. They're not even my cats, but they live in my house. And the reason I struggle with my cats is because they are so indecisive. Right? They go to the door. My cats go in and out. Right? They go to the door. And they stand there. And you open the door. And they look at you. They look at the door. They look at you. Then you close the door and they start to meow. Like, come on, open the door. So you go open the door and they walk away. <laughs> so indecisive. We have one cat. There's a particular brand of wet cat food we have to get for this cat. Because, and a particular flavor of a particular brand. And even within that brand, she'll eat one can but not another. I, I, I just don't get it. But you know what? I think sometimes we treat God that way. We say, I want to be a Christian. Yeah, God, I want your power to flow through my life. And he says, okay, I need you to get up in the morning and read your Bible. Well, no, I can't get up in the morning and read my Bible. I need you to go and join with other Christians to worship me on Sundays. Well, you know, Lord, the weather is so nice this time of year and the boat, I haven't taken it out for a while. Listen, you got to decide what's important. God's grace does not make you a marionette. God's grace is there to meet you when you cooperate with God. God's hands are over yours. You can hit that ball. But you've got to cooperate. And if you choose not to cooperate, then God's grace does not have the effect that it could have. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, God's sovereign and he can do what he wants. You're right. God can work around you to accomplish his will. But Psalm 78, I believe it's verse 41, tells us that they turned back and they limited the Holy One of Israel. Now, God still accomplished His purpose. They just didn't get to see it. And if you want to see God's purposes in your life, you've got to cooperate with Him. If you want to see that change in your life first. Now, here's the problem. We always want to see change in the other person's life first. I'm not talking about if you want to see change in your spouse or in your child or in your parent. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if you want to see change in your life first, you've got to cooperate with God. Get the teaching. It took them a whole year. whole year they assembled together and, and uh, Barnabas and Saul taught them. Get the teaching. But remember, it takes God's grace. Father, I'm grateful for the folks that you brought out this morning. And, and I needed this reminder that I have got to cooperate with you. So many times, I don't experience your grace in its fullness, in its sweetness. Because I'm busy with my own plans. I have my own priorities, and I'm doing what I want to do. Father, forgive me. Open my eyes to your grace flowing through my life, and, and teach me to cooperate with you. 
so that I can experience your grace in its full effect, so that you are glorified, so that my life is changed. And I pray this for all of us, that we'd have changed lives, that people would look at us and say, hey, those people are different. We've got to give them a name. We'll call them Christians. And and that name in our society is is not what it ought to be because too many people say they're Christians and don't act like it. But we, Lord, we want to be those who act so differently that people recognize there's a difference. We want to be committed. We want to pay the cost. We want to cooperate with you. And so we ask for your help in these things and pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.